Hey there, it's Melissa Brunetti, and welcome to the Mind Your Own Karma podcast. Hey there, Karma crew. Welcome to another episode of Mind Your Own Karma. I have a special guest today, Terrence Dawkins. He is a counselor, and we talk about attachment theories, adoptive parents, and what they can do to help their child adjust. We talk about the fog. We talk about reunions, all kinds of things that we're covering in today's episode. But let me tell you a little bit about Terrence. Terrence Dawkins is a South Carolina licensed independent social worker clinical practice. He is also licensed as a licensed clinical social worker in North Carolina. Terrence received his undergraduate and master's degree in social work from Winthrop University. He is also the owner of his own private practice entitled Missing Pieces Counseling Services, which is located in the community where he grew up. He currently works in the Counseling Center at Furman University as well. Terrence has completed training in dialectical behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, and internal family systems therapy. He likes to use an eclectic approach when providing services to his clients. Through his own childhood experiences and the experiences from his clients, he has discovered the importance of the different beliefs and lessons that are learned through family interactions and daily interactions. This has led to his interest in transgenerational trauma and the impact it has made throughout many generations. Terrence seeks to utilize his skills to destigmatize mental health, especially in the African-American community. He believes mental health is for everyone and has a hope to reduce the self-imposed barriers which prevents clients from utilizing mental health services. Here is my interview with Terrence Dawkins. All right, we are welcoming Terrence Dawkins to the show today. Hi, Terrence. Hey, how are you? I am great. Um, I'm going to have you start by telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay. So my name is Terrence Dawkins. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I'm from Spartanburg, South Carolina, where I do work at a local university here, but I also have my own private practice entitled Missing Pieces Counseling Services. And I went to school at Winthrop University, which is located in Rock Hill, South Carolina, And there I got my undergrad and master's degree in social work and decided I wanted to move back home and got licensed as a clinical social worker so I can provide therapy services and do different workshops as well as public speaking engagements on ground topics. Awesome. So let's just jump right in. We had um, talked and emailed back and forth a little bit about attachment theory. Can you define that for us? Yes. So attachment theory was developed by John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. And ultimately what that is saying is our bonds that we develop early on in childhood impacts how we interact with the world and interact with other people. And they describe a few attachment styles or attachment categories, one of those being secure attachment. And secure attachment is where we feel like we have all our needs and all our wants met. And that way we can anticipate others to give us what we need, give us what we want. So we can depend on our caregivers, we can depend on other people in the world, so we have that secure attachment. 
Another attachment is anxious attachment. And this one's a little bit different because with this one, it's more of like a, it's developed from inconsistent parenting uh, patterns. And it's, I guess you could say sometimes the parents are supportive, sometimes they're responsive, and that could be emotionally specifically. And what happens with anxious attachment is the child doesn't know what they're going to get. So they become anxious around, do I, am I going to have what I need met? How are the parents going to respond? And that could lead to low self-esteem of the self, but they still have high hopes for others to give them what they want and need. And another one would be avoided attachment. And this one is more of people that are not emotionally there or emotionally available. And so the child or the adult later can be highly independent and they don't necessarily want or need relationships because they feel like they're not going to get what they want. They're not going to get what they need. So they really avoid those type of interactions and avoid those different types of bonds. And the last one would be disorganized where the child is, is inconsistent when unpredictable. So it's similar to anxious attachment and also a similar to avoided. But with the disorganized, they seek and they want this relationship. They want this bond, but they're so confused or so fearful of what they might get that they're so they're disorganized. And this one has a negative view of their self and a negative view of others. Yeah, I see a lot of adoptees, I think, with disorganized um, because yes. I think it's like what they want the most, they fear the most as well. Exactly. Yeah. So, and, you know, attachment theory can go a lot deeper than my brief explanation, but that's just a brief overview of right. each attachment style. So can you explain kind of what happens when that mother-child bond is broken at birth or soon after birth? Yeah, so there is this thing. I study intergenerational trauma, Mm -hmm. and that ties directly to attachment theory, I do believe. But intergenerational trauma is ultimately the traumas that are passed along to us from our caregivers and our parents and the interactions we have with them. And part of that is what they call epigenetics. Have you ever heard of that before? Yeah, but I don't know much about it. So epigenetics is the expression of genes, ultimately. So when a mother is carrying a child, the experiences that she might have, whether it's a stressful environment or anything like that, that can directly be passed to a child. So at birth, when that child is born, it will respond to different things in the world as, it, as if it was still in the, the fetus in the womb. So it really just depends on how the environment that the mother was in and how that can impact the child. But when a mother is separated from a child, depends, and this is very dependent on the age, I think. So when a mother is separated, that bond is broken. So the child can then develop one of these different attachment styles aside from secure because that attachment with the mother is broken. So they could feel anxious about, well, I'm going with the stranger. I don't know if the stranger is going to give me what I need. Avoid it as far as I don't know. I'm going to avoid different interactions or different attachments because I don't know what I'm going to get or disorganizes. I'm confused as a whole as far as depending on what exactly happens to that child will be separated. So if there was 
trauma and abuse that was in the home, that child is fearful of the person that is supposed to be giving them the care they need. So I don't know whether they're going to do something to harm me. I don't know whether they're going to do something and give me what I need. So that's where that confusion comes into play. And that's how it's different from the other attachment styles. So when the mother is separated at birth or separated later on in childhood, that early on attachment is broken. So do you believe, because we talk a lot about how the outside world, outside of the adoption community talk about, well, you don't remember it. So how, you know, how does that affect you later in life? Mm-hmm. It's something that you cognitively don't remember. Um, and we talk about, you know, how it's stored in ourselves. Yes. Yes. That's exactly what I was about to bring up. So with trauma is really stored in the body. If you really think about it, cause that energy has to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. So just because I don't remember a specific event happening, whether I'm adopted or not, doesn't mean it's not going to impact me, but ultimately what's going to happen is your body is going to respond as if it's in that situation. So if I don't remember, you know, the separation or remember when I was taken from my family, but in a way, when I get older, I'm placed, placed in a situation where, someone that I truly care about leaves or I lose that person, my body's going to respond the same way as if I was being taken or the same way as if um, I was being removed from the home. It's going to respond that way because it's something that your body's familiar to. So what are some ways that an infant might be able to act out because we're nonverbal and we can't run away. And so what are some things that you might see in an infant that has attachment disorder? Okay. So there was this study done by Mary Ainsworth called The Strange Situation. And with that, she ultimately put a mother, child, and a stranger in a room, and there were different stages to this experiment. And in some of those stages was mother was in there with the child engaging, playing. Then they brought a stranger in with the mother and the child. Then the mother left, but left the child with the stranger. Then the mother reunified and came back. And what they found was if a child had a secure attachment, when mom left, the child would be stressed out, be very distressed because the person that I look for to get my wants and needs met is gone. And then when they were with the stranger, there was real avoidant and along with the stranger. But what they saw was when mother came back, the child was interacting with both the stranger and the mother because the person they felt secure with that they felt safe with was back in the room. So I know that that person's not going to allow anything to harm me or hurt me. Mm. So I'm going to interact with the stranger. So there was a positive reunification there. And mom is that safe base. So with anxious attachment, again, when mom left, it was still that I'm real distressed. I'm real anxious. I, I want her to come back. And so do you see this sense of a distress response? But then when mom comes back, the child wasn't necessarily go straight to her. It's more of a avoidant kind of fear and resistant to go back to her because you left me. Mm-hmm. The person that I felt safe with, especially when I was here with a stranger, because the stranger, I really, I was fearful of that stranger when you left. And, you, and when you came back, I don't know whether you want to leave or not. So I get anxious with that and I kind of push them away and you'll see that that child probably cries a little bit more. But then with avoiding attachment, when mom leaves, surprisingly, guess what? There was no distress at all. Wow. So you could leave 
and I'm still going to be okay because I can't rely on you. I'm going to rely on myself. Mm. And so I, I, since I'm relying on myself, if I'm there with a stranger, I'm going to go play with that stranger as if that was my caregiver because I regulate myself. You don't regulate me. And so when mom returns, that child will still show little interest to mom when she returns because, again, I don't know what you're going to do, so I don't really trust you that much. So mother and the stranger, they kind of were equals in a way. So you can see some of those things in children, whether they cry a lot when the caregiver leaves, how they interact with the caregiver, if the caregiver wants to come back. Um, so different things like that, because the behaviors that we see in the children is what, how they communicate. And that's crying, that's reaching for the, the parent, that's, you know, pushing them away, turning their back to them. So it's all about paying attention to those small behaviors to see exactly how they respond. Yeah. So what are some ways that an adoptive parent can navigate that when they notice those things in their child? Yeah. So I think along with intergenerational trauma, so it, it's the, the aspect of if I'm an adoptive parent, I need to be aware of what I'm bringing into this new relationship with this adoptee. So that means the traumas that I've probably experienced or the teaching and beliefs that I've experienced, I need to be aware of that first to understand how I'm going to react to a child if they were to display some of these behaviors. I think that's one important thing because just because you bring a new child in doesn't mean they're going to be perfect. They might have some behaviors that they display. And how are you reacting to those display behaviors? So I think first of what an adoptive parent would need to do is be aware of their own stuff that they're bringing into it. But then also to have patience with this new member of their family because they have things that are being brought into this relationship as well. Again, that could be through genetics. That can be through their experiences. So being patient with them and trying to learn how to work together. But the key thing is to try to get that secure attachment so that they know that, hey, I know that you probably had some things that happened to you before, but I'm here. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to give you what you want and need. So being more aware of what they're bringing in, but also being patient with what that child is experiencing to try to help transition that attachment. Yeah, I'm kind of hoping the narrative has changed since I was adopted in the late 60s, because then it was kind of, you know, integrate the child as much as possible and make it as normal as possible, which meant don't talk about adoption at all. Like, you know, don't, we're not, you're part of our family now and how lucky you are and we chose you and, you know, the whole narrative Exactly. um, when, so you get that vibe, like, I can't talk about it. I can't talk about my feelings about it. I mm-hmm. feel abnormal that I'm having these feelings because they're telling me I shouldn't have these feelings. Yep. So it's a huge thing. I'm hoping it's changing right now. I don't know if you know anything about if that's changing or not. Like in the I'm not adoption. sure, but just hearing you speak about that, part of what happens when you're trying to develop these different attachments is being there, emo- being emotionally available to the child. And that could be if I had a child that wanted to talk about their biological parents, and I avoided it. That's not really being emotionally available. That's showing that, well, this is something that we just can't talk about. So the, the child's going to have feelings about that. And that could then lead them to that anxious attachment. That could lead them to that avoided attachment because 
guess what? I my feelings doesn't seem valid. So I don't know what I'm going to get from you. So I hope it has changed as well because that could lead to some of these different attachment disorders and things like that. I know for me, when you were talking about, I guess it would be the avoidance um, where it's, I can take care of myself. I'm very, very much that way. Like I don't want to ask for help. I can do everything on my own. You know, it, it takes a lot for me to ask for help and be that vulnerable to see if someone's going to follow through. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult for me. And even if they do follow through, you still have in your mind that this won't last. Yeah. This isn't forever. This is only temporary. So yes, this happened this time, but probably next time it's probably not going to happen. So that doesn't change the way you still interact with that person, even though they follow through that once. Yeah. And, and that's a clear indication of, hey, I'm avoiding this type of interaction with your relationship. Yeah. The other thing is a lot of us went to foster care in between I was in foster care for two and a half months. Part of that was because my birth mother hadn't, didn't want to sign the papers yet. But a lot of us were just put there, even though there were parents waiting. And I recently learned from another adoptee that they did that as kind of a test period to see how the baby was going to react. Well, okay, so then you've just taken them away from their mother, put them in foster care. So now they're attaching to the foster parent and then you're yep. removing them again. And for me, when I was in foster care, because my mom hadn't signed papers yet, she would come see me. Mm -hmm. So I would see her for an hour or two and then she would leave again and then she would come back. And I don't know, like, I would just wonder how I felt as that baby having her come and go like that and then getting adopted and it's, you know. I think that's probably where I, I adopted that um, attachment disorder. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's difficult as a baby or a young child to have a caregiver come in and out, in and out, and you're not understanding exactly what's going on. You just know that they're there for a short amount of time, and then I'm here with these other people. And mm -hmm. then even if I do develop an attachment to these other people, they, I, I get moved again. That just reinforcing the fact that I can't develop close relationships because they're going to get disrupted. So what is the point anyway? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of adoptees that feel that way. And I think they don't realize why they're doing it, you know? Yeah. Um, the other thing that I wanted to bring up was transracial adoptions because that mirroring for any of us, but especially transracial adoptees, is huge. Um, and so many of us don't get to experience our biological culture. You know, the, um, the families we come into, we kind of just blend in with that. And partially because those adoptive families want us to feel like part of their family uh -huh. and they don't want us to feel different, but we do feel different. Yeah, we do. And so that needs to be looked at. So why is mirroring so important to children? I think mirroring is so important because from, from what I've experienced, a lot of people will come to therapy for me personally, because they say, I want someone that looks like me, mm. right? So they feel like that I have or share a lot of different experiences they might share, that I might have a different understanding than someone else. And in some aspects, that's true. So I think mm. mirroring in reference to adoption is, is very important because it gives that person uh, something to hang on to as far as I can relate to you. That means I would be easier to attach to you instead of feeling like I'm different. 
and that I always have to be on the defense. So I have to always be on guard. No matter how much you tell me that, you know, I'm a part of the family, no matter how much you tell me that, you know, you love me, in my mind, some of the small things you might do shows me that I'm different. And again, that goes back to the, the topic that I like to study. It's called intergenerational trauma. You have these families that do have these, you know, the transracial, uh, how do you say that? What was transracial. That? Mm-hmm. Yeah, transracial uh, adoptions. And they're bringing in certain things and certain beliefs that they might have and interactions that they have against, you know, a specific race or a specific culture. And sometimes that's how they respond to them. And the perceptions that they have about different races and different cultures might impact exactly how they interact with the child. And yeah, I think what's also important is trying to really think about why am I adopting this child in the first place? Huge. What is my intention for adopting this child? And sometimes it's, you know, bad intentions. I will say, you know, I want to, I want to take this child away from and be the superhero for this child. But is that really benefiting the child yeah. or is that benefiting you so that you can feel like you've done something good for the environment of the world? So I think really understanding what you're bringing into this, like I said before, bringing into the adoption is very important. Yeah. The other thing is infertility is huge, a big reason. And a lot of people adopt without getting therapy for that issue ahead of time you know, like grieving that you can't have your own child or whatever needs to happen. I don't even know, but a lot of times they don't look at those issues before they adopt. And then they try and slap that bandaid on there. And a lot of times it doesn't work because that's still not your biological child. And so it's difficult. I think if you don't get that therapy ahead of time. Exactly. Cause like I said, that child's going to bring in different behaviors that, you know, you weren't anticipating and that might not even be the child's fault. And like I said, it could be through genetics, it could be through interaction and experiences, and they're going to bring in stuff that you might not be ready for. So how are you going to react? That child continuously does these disruptive behaviors and disrupt the family that you created. And how are the attitudes that you then create from those beliefs when that interact how you are emotionally there for that child? Yeah. And, you know, a lot of these kids act out. They always talk about the um, compliant adoptee, and then there's the one that acts out. Mm-hmm. And I was a compliant adoptee, but a lot of them that act out are just waiting for you to reject them. They're like, what are you exactly. going to do now? What are you going to do now? Are you going to stay? Are you, you know, what's, you know, and so it's a testing thing. And I think a lot of adoptee parents are not ready for that and they don't know why this is happening. And then they react like you were saying earlier, because they don't understand that it's part mm-hmm. of their relinquishment. And it's so much. You said I was a compliant adoptee, but I would even pose the question of why were you or any other be so compliant. What was the reasoning behind that? It's not just because I want to follow the rules. It feels like that. It, it can be two things. One, I feel like what happened to me was my fault. So I need to be compliant so it doesn't happen again. Exactly. But then I can be compliant and then you will love me, you will care for me, all my needs will be met. So again, that's a part of that anxious attachment style. If I do everything that I can, then you're not going to leave me that kind of leads into behaviors that can happen in adulthood too. Yeah. Yeah. So um, kind of getting back to the mirroring for a second, I think that's another thing that adoptive parents need to look at because like I said, they want to make you feel so much a part of the family that they ignore 
your biology and your culture. And it's so important to celebrate that. And that's a gift really, because if you bring another child from a different biology and culture into your family, celebrate it, take, take them to cultural events. Yeah. Bring your family to these cultural events, cook the food, like exactly celebrate that. I think that is so much better than trying to ignore it and pretend that they are part of you, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So you mentioned adults, um, attachment theory, how that play out as an adult, what would you see? Okay. So you talked about it a little bit, but yeah, I haven't really talked a lot about secure attachment. That's because again, if I'm secure, I don't have any worries or concerns. I'm not going to really display any type of negative behaviors or anything like that. And you will have like fulfilling and fulfilling relationships. So, but when you look at something like uh, anxious attachment, then that would look like I'm always afraid that someone's going to leave or I do something wrong. So whenever I, whenever something seems wrong, and it does, again, it's my perception, it doesn't mean, necessarily mean there is anything wrong. When I see that something's wrong or feel something's wrong, I'm going to get hypervigilant. I'm going to get real anxious. And so that means I need to do whatever I can to make sure that this person stays. Mm. So what that looks like is, for example, if I feel like I'm in a relationship or friendship and that person might have had something going on in their own personal life with someone else, but then, then they're not talking then I get real hypervision because I did something for them not to talk to me and I got to fix it. So I continue to ask them what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong, because I want to know what can I do to fix it. And then they get aggravated with me. And a lot of people might see that as being clean, yep. but it's really that I'm trying to calm my own nervous system down so that I make sure that everything's okay. Or you have someone with the avoided attachment. And what that looks like is I don't, really like intimate or physical touch or I want you don't want to keep you at a distance um, and I'm not really emotionally available for you and, and things like that so that person is real distant in a relationship and if you have somebody that's real distant in a relationship but then you have someone who's very anxious in a relationship they're going to clash mix and uh, you know, because that person's going to, the anxious person could be seen as clingy the avoided person can be seen as distant and even though something's not necessarily wrong with the person with the avoided attachment, the anxious person is going to feel like it is. And they're going to try to do whatever they can to make sure that things are okay. And that's probably going to get on the avoided person's nerves. And now, guess what? The relationship probably ended. So what is it when, because I see this a lot in the adoptee community too, clingy at first, but then when that person starts mm-hmm. to be clingy back is when they're like, I'm done, I'm out. Yeah, so clingy at first, and then let's say the other person starts to get clingy because that's it. They have that distrust there, so that could be a part of anxious and avoidant. So with these attachments, you don't necessarily have to fit in a one category. You can move through these different categories. So I can have an anxious attachment, and I can want these relationships, and I try to do whatever I can. But then once I get it, I then remember, hang on. Wait a minute, when I had this before, that person left or that person wasn't giving me what I need. So let me back myself off a little bit. So they went from one to the other and that's not abnormal at all. Okay. Yeah. 
So I want to talk about adoption fog for a minute. I know that a lot of adoptees hate the term, but it's just kind of a blanket term. It's just easier to say the fog and we all know what it means. So the fog describes the way adoptees feel, think, operate and relate before they come out of the denial that they're feeling and conditioning and ignorance that cloaks the impacts of adoption. So how do adoptees get in the fog in the first place? Why do we have that screen? I know you explained that to me a little bit before, a little bit more in depth. Could you try it one more time? Because I kind um, yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, so the fog is basically kind of a survival mode, and we don't even realize that we're doing it. And then usually what happens is there's some kind of event that kind of wakes us up where those rose-colored glasses are off, and we're like, oh, my gosh. I have this attachment disorder. This is why I'm, you know, so angry. This is why I can't have relationships because of those attachments and things. And it's because I was adopted. We're told so often, like I said earlier, not to have these feelings because we're in a great family and you're lucky and, mm-hmm. you know, you have parents. And so as a kid, we get told that well, our feelings aren't normal. So we put up this fog around us to kind of help us cope. But then we come out of it and we're like, whoa. It's a defense, I believe. I, I think it's, it's, well, it's a couple of things. One, I feel like it's a defense mechanism. Two, I think it's, like you said before, you mentioned the word survival. It's a way for me to be able to survive because as humans, we want to be able to survive. We want to make sure that our needs are met. And we want to have fulfilling relationships. I think that's true for everybody. But when we have things that happen to us, we put up this fog or put on this mask to where I have to protect myself. So if I can protect myself that certain things aren't true, or I can protect myself to prevent something from happening, then I ultimately don't feel those negative emotions or negative feelings that I don't want to feel. So I feel like it's, it's definitely a defense, but then, like you said, something happens that kind of wakes you up, and then you realize that it is true. And I think that is so important because you cannot begin to heal until you acknowledge some of the things that are bothering you, until you acknowledge some of the experiences that you've had and the impact it has on you, and also that you acknowledge the different behaviors that then come from that. So I think it's very important to come out of that fog, to take off that mask, to, to realize that these things did have an impact on the end. But just because they had an impact doesn't mean they have to have an impact. So that's two different things, right? So if they had an impact, yeah. that means it's already happened, it impact, but it doesn't have to have an impact for me to move forward with my life. What do you think about, because some people never say that they were ever in the fog. You know, there's adoptees that are just fine throughout their entire lives and it doesn't bother them. And then other ones, it feels like, you know, when they come out of the fog, it literally feels like they're dying. Mm -hmm. They're hurting so badly. Is that kind of related to attachment styles? Why do you think there's such a trauma? That's related to trauma because what happens is as long as you continue to be in the fog, again, like I told you before, the body keeps the score. That's a, a trauma book as well. So the body yeah. keeps the score. So the longer I stay in there, I'm ultimately sitting in that trauma. And if I continue to sit in that trauma, it continues to have this negative impact on me, which is why the longer I stay in it, when I finally do come out, I have this greater response to it as negatively. And I think that's why a lot of people feel like they're like used to the term that they're dying because they've sat with this so long that when they finally do realize it, that it's just overwhelming for them. 
why do some adoptees never feel like they have any trauma from adoption? Because if I have to acknowledge it or I have to admit it, that I mean, that makes it real. Mm. So I want so badly to think that the experiences that I've had, the trauma that I've had before is not true. It didn't happen to me or that I want to just forget it. Because if I could forget it, then I would be okay. But that's mm-hmm. not necessarily the case all the time. And I feel like when you don't acknowledge the, the trauma that you've had, you can't begin to truly heal. And then you wonder why these different relationships that you have, whether they're friendships, whether they're intimate relationships, aren't working out. Why you respond to different circumstances the way that you do or situations the way that you do. And so truly trying to understand yourself, you have to admit that these things had a impact and what that impact was to truly figure out okay well these behaviors aren't working anymore let me try something different and if you don't acknowledge those things that's happened in the past you continue to do the same things over and over and you ultimately are in a way re-traumatizing yourself Mm. i think it helps the way that you're raised to like like we were talking earlier about if the adoptive parent really talks about their culture and allows them to speak about adoption and get their feelings out early. I think that is huge too, with Mm -hmm. how much fog you're in. (laughs) Yeah. Because everybody wants to feel safe and secure. I'm not going to open up if I don't feel safe and I don't feel secure. So when I'm adopted and there's not a safe and secure environment, you might get some things out of me, but you're not going to get everything out of me. Right. You might be aware of some of the things that are impacting me or bothering me, but you're not going to know it all. So creating that safe and secure environment, I think, is very important. And that, even with the transracial adoptions, could be as simple as bringing in the culture of that, you know, adoptee so that they can feel safe and secure instead of having them feel like they're an outcast because they're different or they look different. Yeah. So that safe and secure environment is very important. Yeah. Letting that child be authentic. I think so many people, especially with adoption, they want them to just feel so much a part of them, but they're not. So let's just, uh-huh. let's address the elephant in the room and let's embrace it. Exactly. It's not a bad thing. Like we need to embrace not it. Not at all. Yeah. And the thing is, if I don't get it from home, I want to get it from somewhere else. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of what happens with these different behaviors and why you might see some adoptees have these negative behaviors be hanging out with, you know, the as people would say, the wrong crowd because they're getting in trouble and stuff like that because they make me feel safe and secure. Or these people that I'm interacting with now makes me safe and secure because they look like me. Mm. And then unless you bring that into the home, they're going to find it somewhere else and it might not be the way that that adoptive parent would want it to be. Right. Let's talk about biological family reunions. This is like a big subject obviously in adoptee communities and most of the time these reunions don't go well and mine was difficult only because the you know you have the honeymoon period and everything's great like you know like what you see on tv and everybody's happy and hugging and everything and then after that it's kind of like well I have a mom so who are you to me now and who what am I going to call you and it's just so complicated and even my biological siblings I didn't grow up with them. I want to feel that bond because we have blood, but I don't. 
I love them, you know, and I love having a relationship with them, but I don't have that sibling bond. So why, why is that? As far as the sibling bond or? Yeah, just, just in reunions in general, like why, I think a lot of times both sides maybe have expectations that aren't being met. You know, Mm -hmm. my birth mother, I believe um, the whole time me growing up, I think she thought I looked a different way and would be just different. Like what she had in her mind was different. And so it just kind of got rocky. And then you kind of feel like you can't have hard conversations with this person because it's supposed to be happy and we're supposed to get along and, you know, you don't want to rock the boat. It's just so, it's a huge, it's a huge thing. It is, (laughs) but I think that could be, it could be a combination of things, but it can go back to whichever attachment style that you're actually in at the moment, because you still have that fear that, well, I can't get close to you because, again, you might leave, or I can't really bond with you because you've never been really there for me. So I don't know what, again, like you said, expectations. I don't know what to expect from you. So I can't really get as close to you as I want to. And especially if the, with the reunification piece of it, you want me to be a certain way or think I'm going to be a certain way, but you respond to what you want me to be after you responding to what I am. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very important. And I also think it's important because some of the families that are being by those parents or those siblings, they're again, bringing into stuff. That's that intergenerational trauma piece of it. They're bringing in stuff into these relationships that they still haven't really healed or truly fully understand. And so just because you're not as, Know, forthcoming or open to the relationship at first, they then respond and give up quickly because that's probably how they've always always done things before. So they're not really willing to be as patient with you, not really be as open as they want you to be because they expect it to happen so quickly. But when you have things of reunification, especially from a major disruption, things don't happen quickly. Yeah. So I think that patience piece isn't there a lot of times. Yeah. And then just trying to figure out, especially with the mother and biological mom and dad, like I have parents, Mm -hmm. (laughs) they're not you, but at the same time, you are my birth mother. So it's just kind of very confusing for the adoptee to figure out where these people fit into your life. It's, It's very confusing. And that's, I think that's something that we don't think about going into reunion. We just want the reunion. Uh And I think there needs to be some therapy before, during, and after. Yes, for sure. Reunion, because it's so complicated. And there's so many ups and downs, and you just don't know where it's going to end up. And then you end up with that second rejection from your birth mother. Uh That is, you know, again, like you said, that just kind of nails in those attachment theories that Uh you rejected me once and you're doing it again like doing again horrible and so i respond as if you did it the first time but if not worse yeah yeah it's horrible there's so many stories out there that's why i started doing this podcast because the education isn't out there Mm -hmm. and it needs to be especially for adoptive parents because they're getting into something that they have no clue about. <laughs> no, listen, like I said, I think being very clear about why you want to do it, whether that's you know the infertility, whether that's what I want, I want to you know add to the family, or I want to be the superhero to this child. Being real clear about how what's your intentions can then help you 
with navigating how I'm going to interact and respond to this child and am I going to do what I feel is best for this child. And something I think is very important to acknowledge is, if, especially if you already have children as an adoptive parent, you're not going to be able to parent that adoptee like you parent your own children. Yeah. You can't do it. Yeah. Because you have to adjust to that child. The child is always going to adjust to you. If they do adjust to you, they probably are going to one of these different attachment styles that, that are aside from secure attachment. Right. So what are some key things? We kind of talked about it a little bit, but what are some key things to help adoptees adjust as children? We talked about integrating the culture and their biology. Uh-huh. Um, we talked about listening to the child, letting them kind of be authentic. Is there anything that we're missing that you can think of? Being specific, I think it really depends on the uh, adoptee to figure out exactly, you know, what are some of these behaviors they got going on or what are some of these different, how they're interacting with me, because I think it's got to be very specific to that adoptee because uh, it's not really something that I can say that you could overall do aside from those things Mm -hmm. that would help them adjust. But if you can figure out and educate yourself as far as the adoptive parent about the child's background, I think that's going to be something that's very helpful. Understanding what the child has went through, whether that's different foster placements, whether that's different uh, abuse situations that they've been through, truly understanding what's going on so you can educate yourself of how to respond to that child. And if they are placed in a situation where they feel unsafe, they start to respond. I think that's going to be very important for the adoptive parent. And, but you asked about the adoptive child, but I think a lot of we touched on it already, in my opinion. What do you think about family therapy? Because when should that start? Because I believe it should start for the adoptive parents before they adopt. Obviously, we kind of talked about that. Um, yep. But integrating the child into that as things come up. Do they have that kind of therapy? What age should that start? I think that, again, I agree with you. I think that therapy should be before, during, and after. Because before, especially when you're looking to adopt, before when you're trying to figure out, again, educate yourself about that child that you're potentially going to adopt so that therapists can help you work through some of your own stuff so that that doesn't impact how you interact with the child. But I also think it's going to be important during. But the key thing, and I read this article not too long ago, it talked about how some of the adoptive children thought therapy didn't help, mainly because the therapist was more focused on the adoptive parents or the caseworker and their reports and what they're saying Mm -hmm. that they wanted, their needs, not the children, not the child's. They were not being empathetic to what the child needed or what the child wanted at that time. So therapy was not working at all. So I think if you were to do therapy before, the main concern is going to be the adoptive parents. During, the main concern is going to be both the adoptive parents and the child, but more so the child. And then after, it's kind of like wrapping everything up and and watching how the work that both the child and the parents did before is kind of reflected now. When should it start for the child, though? Like, what age do you think? As soon as they get adopted. Yeah, as soon as they get adopted. Well, actually, I think therapy needs to start while they're in foster care. It needs to start while they're in foster care, early on while they're in foster care. So if if I know that I'm going to remove a child from the home 
I'm going to not only put them in foster care, I'm already looking for therapy services for them because that's a traumatic experience that needs to be addressed. But a lot of times what you'll see is children that are removed from homes, they've probably been in therapy before anyway. Yeah. A lot of people have. And so I think as, as soon as they are adopted, that they should go out and ask for the help with maybe whatever brought them into care, but also to help with the transition from the removal and the traumatic experience from the removal. And I used to work at a community-based therapy service. I've seen children as little as three years old. Are there therapists that can help with babies? I'm not sure, to be honest. I don't want to really tell you and I'd be wrong, but I'm not necessarily sure. I haven't heard. I haven't heard of it. I just, but I think when I'm just thinking out loud, <laughs> when they're younger like that, a lot of the work would be with the parents, not necessarily the child. And then when the child becomes right. two or three and uh, is more able to communicate or show some behaviors of them being able to tell you what they want and need in a way, that's when the therapy with the child would begin. But a lot of the therapy, especially early on in childhood, is with the parents. Yeah, I, I've heard of adoptive parents telling their adoptees later on that you didn't want to be held, you didn't want to be hugged, you know, you would like push me away. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I guess that would be something that the parent would have to bring to the therapist and say, what should I do? You know, should I force that? Should I not? You know, and I don't even know what the answers to that would be. But yeah, it would be more, I guess, the adoptive parents kind of how are you going to handle that? Yeah those situations it's so complicated it, 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 listen <laughs> none of the questions you've asked so far there's not a simple answer and there's probably more information that i probably haven't touched on but guess what i'm making a, i'm making an effort you're so brave <laughs> yes you are <laughs> so tell us um how we can get a hold of you do you have any social media or YouTube channels? or Yeah, so my Facebook profile is called Missing Pieces Counseling Services. And my Instagram is Missing Pieces Counseling. So the services is not on the end of the Instagram. And my website is actually www.missingpiececounselingllc.com. And we will put all those in the show notes in case anyone wants to get a hold of you. Do you do counseling on YouTube and I mean, on Zoom? I'm licensed in South Carolina and I'm licensed in North Carolina. I do in-person sessions as well as telehealth sessions. Yes, ma'am. Good. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show today. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. I really hope that as an adoptee, you got a little bit of validation from listening to Terrence today. And I hope he got a little bit of insight inside of the adoptee mind. I think more therapists need to hear what we have to say so that they can help us heal. And I'm so glad that he's doing some of these non-traditional therapies. You know, I'm big on that with the EMDR and things like that. I think it's so great to have a toolbox with all kinds of different therapies so that you can find the right combination for you. And it's so great that Terrence offers many of these things in one spot with one counselor so that you don't have to go to multiple counselors because a lot of us adoptees have a hard time trusting. So it's great that he has kind of a unique offering for all kinds of clients. 
Thanks so much, Terrence, for coming on the show. Maybe we'll have him back on to discuss some of these other therapies and how they can help the constellation. Now, I want to talk to you as a listener for just a moment. If you enjoy Mind Your Own Karma, I have a little favor to ask. It will only take two seconds. Can you please subscribe to Mind Your Own Karma on your listening platform? The Karma Crew has been doing such a great job of supporting this podcast. So if you have not done that yet, that is one way that you can help this podcast educate the world. If you would like to know more about me and this podcast, you can go to my website, mindyourowncarma.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening today. And as always, take what you need and leave what you don't. And always remember to mind your own karma. I'll see you next time.